know, the, the real tragedy of the climate justice issue is that those who tend to be most vulnerable are also those who tended to have least emissions and tended to have the greatest development needs. My country is being tested by this hailstorm called Super Typhoon Haiyan. We remain uncertain as to the full extent of the damage and devastation as information trickles in agonizingly slow manner because power lines and communication lines have been cut off and may take a while before they are restored. The initial assessment showed that Haiyan left a wake of massive destruction that is unprecedented, unthinkable, and horrific and the devastation is staggering. I struggle to find words even for the images that we see on the news coverage. And I struggle to find words to describe how I feel about the losses. Up to this hour, I agonize, waiting for word to the fate of my very own relatives. What gives me renewed strength and great relief is that my own brother has communicated to us and he had survived the, the onslaught. I speak for my delegation, but I, I speak, speak for the countless people who will no longer be able to speak for themselves after perishing from the storm. I speak also for those who have been orphaned by the storm. I speak for those who have the people now raising its time to save survivors and alleviate the suffering of the people affected. We can take drastic action now to ensure that we prevent a future where super typhoons become a way of life. Can we ever attain the ultimate objective of the convention, which is to prevent dangerous anthropogenic interference with the climate system? By failing to meet the objective of the convention, we may have ratified our own doom. We have to confront the issue of loss and damage. Loss and damage is a reality today across the world. We cannot solve climate change when we seek to spew more emissions. In solidarity with my countrymen who are struggling to find food back home, and with my brother who has not had food for the last three days, with all due respect, Mr. President, I will now commence a voluntary fasting for the climate. This means I will voluntarily refrain from eating food during this COP until a meaningful outcome is in sight, until concrete pledges have been made to ensure mobilization of resources for the Green Climate Fund. We cannot afford a fourth cup with an empty GCF until the promise of the operationalization of a loss and damage mechanism has been fulfilled, until there is assurance on finance for adaptation, until we see real ambition on climate action in accordance with the principles we have so up upheld. Mr. President, this process has been called a farce. It has been called an annual carbon-intensive gathering of useless frequent flyers. It has also been called saving tomorrow today. We can fix this. We can stop this madness. Welcome to The Shift, a new podcast with conversations on the future of energy and climate. Now, what you just heard was an impassioned speech from the chief climate negotiator of the Philippines at the Warsaw Climate Negotiations in November 2013. Now, his call for action was heartfelt, and within it was a demand for climate justice. So on today's podcast, I speak with Sonia Klinsky on climate justice and its complexity. Sonia is a senior sustainability scientist at Arizona State University. 
She spoke with me about climate justice and her new project of how the notion of transitional justice can be introduced in the climate arena. Now listeners will understand, I assume quite easily, how contentious the issue of climate justice really is. The impacts of global warming are unequal and the disproportionate risks are borne by those who have contributed the least to the problem. Now, whilst the climate negotiations in Paris ended on a high, the challenge of climate justice hasn't been tackled head-on. It remains a serious bone of contention that nations, both at the international and domestic level, will continue to grapple with in the coming months and years. So I began this conversation with Sonia, talking about climate justice in the political arena and at the climate negotiations. When you have negotiations around climate change, uh, what, do you, what do you see are the current tensions uh, in these negotiations? Um, so it's relevant at both the international and the domestic yes. level. So let me just talk about the international first, and then we can talk about the international. Um, at the international level, issues around historical injustice have been um, there from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, tensions about the profound inequalities amongst countries, uh, emission portfolios and trajectories has, yes. has been a core dimension of the negotiations. Um, within that, there has been a lot of tension sort of saying, well, you know, we didn't cause the problem, we shouldn't do anything. Yeah. And the flip side is, right, but when you look at future emissions, we know that the trajectory has changed. So in the past, most emissions came from developed countries. In the future, most emissions are going to be coming from the developing countries, which makes a real tension around this role of historical responsibility. Should historical responsibility be the dominant frame for dealing with who should do what? Or should the idea of future growth and future impacts be the dominant? So there's a real tension there in terms of how we think about What's more important, the past or the future, in determining who should do what for emissions? Yeah. But this is tied to an idea that all emission reductions are a burden. Mm. And this is something that's increasingly being challenged. Mm. So we see that from, for instance, the kind of low-carbon development pathways approach yes. or co-benefits yes. approaches or, you know, there's a whole suite of people thinking yeah. about different ways of doing economics that yeah. would have both economic and environmental benefits. Yeah. So when you start thinking about those things, it changes the equity conversation. Yes. The equity conversation is there isn't about how do we share this burden, but it's there is still a profound justice issue, which is how do we share the benefits hmm. and how do we direct the benefits? So if we know we're already in a situation of profound injustice to begin with, mm-hmm. I personally think there's a very strong moral claim to say mm-hmm. that then any benefits we're generating yeah. in this process need to be preferentially directed to those who are either least well-off or who are most vulnerable. So saying that there's going to be these great benefits does not erase the justice. It simply redirects where the question goes, and it becomes all about opportunity and directing opportunities strategically. And that's at the international level, and those debates are running rampant. Um, The loss and damage conversation, for instance, has opened this idea of vulnerability. Just as um, increased pressures on developing countries to take mitigation action has reopened conversations about is this a burden or are there benefits? And if there are benefits, what do we do with them? Domestically, of course. Sorry, if if I can stick to the international side. Sure, happy to do that. Um, May I interject one little bit there? Sure, sure. It's important in the international negotiations to remember that these are sovereign countries. So you can't make them do anything which means domestic politics and domestic justice disputes politically may be as important as the international justice disputes because it's at the domestic level 
that policy is going to be made or, made or broken, yeah, yeah. which means you can't actually separate the domestic justice issues from the international and vice versa. Yeah. So, but do you see this as a sort of a bottom-up or a top-down or a bit of both? Because we've just finished with the Paris negotiations, for example. Uh, in the preamble, there's a mention of loss and damage, but it's not legally binding. And there's a clear statement which says that countries are not liable for any reparations or compensation for historical emissions, right? Um, so a lot of people claim that that is a cheap injustice, which is now sort of ratified in some sense. Um, how do you, how does one tackle that? So with the loss and damage conversation in particular, it is a, it is a, I mean, it's an absolutely difficult issue. The, the thing is, is that the issue of liability has been so difficult for such a long time that I think most of us who've been following the loss and damage were not surprised by the insistence from developed countries that Mm. they didn't want to deal with liability. And the other element of that is a strict legal liability sense doesn't work very well with climate. Um, You can't track emissions. When do you start drawing the line? What do you do about situations like China where their historical emissions are starting to catch up to those of of much of Mm. the developed world? Um, And you start to have questions about, well, how are we going to do liability even if it was possible? At the same time, the losses we're facing with loss and damage are so profound and they are so obviously unjust from a moral sense, if not a legal sense. Mm -hmm. So I think there, I think we do need to be thoughtful about the expectation that a legal liability system is going to work or is our best option for dealing with those injustices. Since we have such strong pushback, this is such a hard red line for Mm -hmm. the United States and Europe. I'm actually surprised that it even made it in, even with the developing countries giving up that issue of liability. Yeah. Um, you know, six months or eight months ago, the word on the street in the negotiations was that loss and damage would not even be mentioned in the negotiations, period. So we know that there's such strong political resistance there that my personal inclination is that a legal liability framework was probably never going to work, even yeah. though it has some appeal. Yeah. And the question then, for those of us who really care about this issue, changes, yeah. which is, all right, based on the fact that a strict legal liability may not fit this context for political reasons, and I would argue even just our legal systems aren't sure. really well attuned to this, we need to think differently about it, yeah. which is more a question about how do we deal with moral wrongs yeah. and what, how does that open this space? Yeah. And, yeah. and starting to think more about the actual practicalities that are loss and damage are going to entail. Mm. So what is loss and damage going to look like? And then going back to this idea about benefits and burdens, what does that then mean for a variety of other policy efforts so that we can think about how to prioritize those needs mm. in our conversations? Yeah. It's a slightly softer way of looking at it, and those who really have fought for liability would probably object. Yeah. However, having been in and around the climate negotiations for a decade now, mm the liability question is so difficult, then the needs are so immediate that me being a very practical person is starting to say, well, what are we going to do? Keep fighting this in the abstract. Well, needs accumulate for real people, or are we going to start figuring out how to deal with the real people and go there first? I I tend to go that way, but um, different people take different strategies. So going back to the sort of domestic realm now, uh, we do see politics playing a big role, especially in the US and Europe, as you mentioned. Uh, with countries like India and China and Brazil, sort of BRIC nations, uh, for example, um, sort of slightly sort of back down on their equity stance, their hard equity stance. 
probably because they do appreciate the co-benefits approach that you speak of, uh, etc. Um, but how do you see sort of domestic politics and legal systems within these countries, especially the big nations, uh, showing up at you know on dealing with issues of justice? Yeah, well, it's, I mean, it's interesting when you talk to, for instance, some of the Indian NGOs. Um, they play a really interesting role because domestically they're really critiquing their governments and pointing out some of the severe limitations of government policies. But at the international level, they're still backing up uh, the need for the international justice dimension. And I think that's co- going yeah. to continue. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, it's really no other country's role to critique what's happening domestically from an equity perspective. It starts to infringe on sovereignty very quickly. But the NGO community has the ability to do that in a really effective way. Um, one of the really big challenges we see are that some of the shifts, especially for um, like a country like South Africa, mm. where you have a very large industrial core mm. in terms of uh, mining, extraction, coal production, very carbon intensive, um, and thinking hard about how to deal with the country's energy needs and how to change an economy is going to put more strain on certain segments of the population. So just like in developed countries, there's going to have to be an internal conversation about how are we going to manage this? How do we manage the political economy of trying to change the nature of our economy in certain dimensions while growing other ones? And that that is the same justice issue we actually see in developed countries. It's just the actual on the ground dimensions of it are going to be different, but it's the same conversation. It's a little different than in some developing countries where it's um, the inequalities are a little less. So certain developing countries, when you have such huge inequalities, are going to have particular challenges because you're going to be trying to convince often those who have the most to change their behavior, and that becomes really politically difficult. Um, The other area where you know it'll be very interesting to pay attention to in the next several years. Um, a number of developing countries are talking seriously about different forms of carbon pricing. Yeah. Um, we already know that there have been some complications of international carbon markets. For instance, the CDM or Red, Red Plus. There have been local justice issues in yeah. terms of you know dispossession of land or human rights abuses. With carbon pricing from developed countries, we see a lot of regressive impacts. Mm. So those who, even within a developed country, those who often who have least or have been most yeah. seriously affected. The question is, as developing countries start to do some of these carbon pricing things, other than just the kind of classic carbon market in developing countries, how are they going to deal with these issues? Mm. And what kind of strategies are they going to have? What kind of infrastructure do they have? I mean, often the tax systems in countries are already on the weak side, and many of the strategies to making for making carbon pricing non-regressive involve very strong taxation redistribution systems. Mm. So you have questions about the whole infrastructure in order to take the kinds of policies yeah. that won't have internal regressive impacts. Yeah. Yeah. And we're just on the edge of experimenting in that space. And I think that could become a very important issue as countries try to figure out how they're really going to do yeah. a yeah. low-carbon development path. Are there good examples of, of, of taxing and redistribution that have worked successfully in other areas, maybe? Yeah, well, uh, again, in developed countries, this is an area where there's been a lot of experimentation. Um, and we have we mixed results, but also partly because we've had fairly low taxation yes. um, rates on the in the in the carbon world. Yeah. But for instance, most of the uh, significant innovations in carbon pricing have had to deal with the distributive elements. Yeah. So in British Columbia, for instance, they had the first 
the world's first consumer carbon tax, where you know if you had to buy gas or petrol for your car, you had to pay a carbon tax. Yeah. They had an explicit component of a, re, of a redistributive element in that, so that it was a progressive tax, not a regressive one, and it yeah. actually worked. And it was necessary both for political reasons, mm -hmm. because you couldn't get it through otherwise, mm -hmm. and for justice reasons, that you don't want the yes. poorest to pay. So yeah. that's an, actually a very good example. Um, the cap-and-trade system that's within between California and Quebec yeah. has some really interesting features, especially in California. It didn't initially. Yeah. It, probably would have had some regressive impacts or at least um, felt to some of the most vulnerable communities that they, they weren't being heard or respected yeah. and it was going to face political challenges and they've restructured it so that many of the revenues from that process go into the most vulnerable communities so they have a specialized targeted investment funds for things that benefit the very poorest including things like air quality yeah. who tend to be in areas with very very low air quality sure, sure. Um, and so they have targeted particular communities because of they know who's facing which kinds of challenges for the redistributive mechanisms. Yeah. So there are ways of managing this, yeah. but it requires thinking about it before the policy gets implemented. And it requires being sensitive to the particular justice dimensions yeah. in that context. Yeah. So there's a huge scope there to use these lessons and scale them up both in developed and developing countries, sure. but it's not exactly like a cookie cutter approach. It's more about learning from what happened and yes. then saying, well, how much of this would apply? Yeah. And then going that way. Yeah. Yeah. So going to uh, something that you've been working on lately, something called transitional justice approach. Uh, could you throw some light on that? What does it actually entail? So I came to this because I've been working on climate now for a number of years and was getting pretty frustrated with the climate discussion, which has not changed a huge amount in really about 30 years, which yeah. is quite depressing. <laughs> Um, and for me, the big challenge is this both historical justice component mm -hmm. and also the need to move forward in a collective action approach. The reality is that if we want to get the kinds of mitigation targets that we think are essential in order to protect climate impacts from the most vulnerable, yeah. um, we need way more mitigation than we have ever seen. Sure. And that's going to necessarily require action in developing countries. Yeah. So the question is, how do we deal and respect with the fact that we already have an historical injustice and we necessarily are going to have to have more action in those very places that have already seen the most injustice? That seems like a quite a big challenge. Yeah. Yeah. So transitional justice has, is an approach where, um, you know, climate is not the only time we face this kind of backwards forwards look. And transitional justice is one of the frameworks that people have tried to use, which says, okay, we have a historical injustice. Some of the impacts could be profound, mm -hmm. but we also want to move forward with some degree of unity. Yes. How do we do this? So this project is a ex totally experimental project. We have no idea what's going to happen. We're working with a series of policymakers and sort of stakeholder workshops to explore the question, could we learn from transitional justice? Mm -hmm. So some of the components of this include things like making a deal, for instance, that will have some kind of limited reliability for past responsibility in exchange for deep structural changes. So imagine, let's say, something like this South African apartheid case. Yes. There was limited liability for those who had benefited the most from apartheid, but at the same time, they had to cooperate with the truth and reconciliation process yeah. and the fundamental structure all the way down to the education system yeah. Yeah. to even now how we think about how green energy allocations are done all of that 
And it hasn't been entirely successful, but there was attempts to change all the institutions all the way down. Yeah, yeah. So that opens yeah, up an interesting question. And oh. you, couldn't, you couldn't apply liability because? Part of the deal here was that you won't get the most responsible parties cooperating yes. if they're going to face full liability. Yes. So if it's, you know, if I'm going to lose everything yeah. because I'm not going to participate. I'm not going to participate. And the problem is, is that while those of us who want sort of a pure justice might say, well, fine, yes. <laughs> take, take, that, that seems fair. The reality is we're in a fundamentally political space yes. and we're stuck together. Yeah. We, we can't do that necessarily. We can't just walk off and go to another planet. Yeah. And so although it's non-ideal from a pure justice perspective, the transitional justice experience offers a lot of lessons about how to mediate that political dimension mm -hmm. and also our desires for more justice. So things like opening a conversation about, well, how much liability can we really bring into this? How might we limit it? What are some of the options? Yeah. Are there other kinds of accountability measures which force accountability and yet aren't quite the same as a harsh liability which then drives people off. So already we've seen, you know, like the American position in yeah. Paris, we're not doing liability. Yeah. Okay, fine. What's the next step? Is there some other, what are the other kind of softer accountability mechanisms that still might get us somewhere? Or questions like, what does structural change look like? Mm. The fact being able to have that conversation is useful. Yeah. Which kinds of changes do we fundamentally need in order to make this worthwhile for developing yeah. countries? Yeah. So the idea here is to open up the conversation to another way of thinking about it um, and take advantage of the fact that humans have been trying to navigate historical injustice for a very long time. Sure. Um, and but there's could lessons you, could, you, could you still sort of give an example of what the structural adjustment could be? Um, yeah, well, again, this, this is, so there's a number of options on the table. Yeah. Um, it could be things like, so for instance, one of the reasons I came here was is there a different way of doing technology development yeah. so that you're trying to think about how do you have whole systems of technology instead of just sort of individual technologies is there something different about could you do debt relief as a form of finance yeah is there what are the other major barriers that people are experiencing could you do it that way mm. are there you know there, there's many different ways of thinking about what that change yeah. might be and that it's going to vary and it could also be by different countries so the, the reason the transitional justice is useful is that when you start asking the question, what structural change is needed, you're going to get different answers. Mm -hmm. And that is actually a useful thing yeah. because you want to have that debate first. Yeah. Um, but yeah, things like changing the technology structure, changing financing, mm -hmm. looking at debt relief, looking at other forms of kind of long-term inequalities yeah, yeah, yeah. start to change there. Yeah. There's also a conversation about reparations, which is a big part of yes. the uh, transitional justice component. And those reparations are interesting because they don't have to be just financial. Mm. And we often get ourselves into this equity conversation where it's all just financial. Yeah. Um, and when you look at how reparations have been done in certain systems, they're often systemic. Mm -hmm. So there's things like education systems, basic development systems. These are components which we're hearing again and again and again that are absolutely essential to the climate development yeah context but often we've had a hard time finding fitting it into the climate space um, this sort of capacity building conversation sure. but a transitional justice approach would say actually no these are if you have collective systemic losses the only way to deal with those are through collective systemic approaches which are things like massive investment of education systems yes. massive investment in health systems and so again it's not that dissimilar from the development and climate conversation mm -hmm. 
but it broadens the scope yeah. a little bit, which yeah. I think is useful instead of getting more and more narrow to say, well, let's step back and broaden the scope. Yeah. So that's why I'm interested in this approach. Cool. So my final question is, clearly this approach requires you to cast a very wide net and bring a lot of stakeholders involved. How does one begin this approach? Like, where do you even start? Because yeah, it's that's a great question, and um, I'm not sure I'm being terribly successful. <laughs> um, so I have a project with a research network, which tries to do research on the edge of sort of academic research and policy engagement. And this is a challenge for those of us who are in the academy, mm-hmm. but also wanting to engage with real-world problems. Yes. Um, and, and so I purposefully partnered with them because as a single academic, I don't have access to the same kind of range of policy makers. At the same time, you know, I've been in and around the climate negotiations for a long time. I have a pretty big network. Um, I know many of the other people who are talking about climate inequity. So yeah. trying to bring in as many people who are negotiators, who are policy advisors, other academics as possible. So the way we're organizing the project is just even to do the initial scoping, we have a series of three workshops, where all of which are international, where we bring together transitional justice scholars, climate experts, and yeah. policymakers together and talk about these ideas. And they're very interesting because yeah. many people think I'm completely crazy and it's a terrible <laughs> idea. But then they start to think about it and they go, oh, actually, it is kind of crazy, but it's not that crazy. Yeah. Um, and then the idea is that we'll put together some policy briefs that can feed into the process um, this year. We picked this year to do this. This idea has been around for a while, but we picked this year um, because it's after Paris and people can think, which is important. Um, and it's because there's going to be a review of the Warsaw International Mechanism yes. for Loss and Damage. And we think that this conversation about how to deal with loss and damage is potentially really a difficult one and one where we need some new ideas. And so we were hoping that the timing of this, as people are starting to look for new ideas, they might be more willing to kind of engage in this open thinking. Sure. Um, so it's kind of, that's the sort of the, the strategy is to get some gossip going in the climate space, get lots of people talking about it, bring as many stakeholders as we can to the workshops, you know, doing all the things like writing policy briefs yeah. Um, yeah. and then just seeing what happens. Cool. So all this sounds very exciting. Where can we read about your work? Uh, so the easiest place to go is the Climate Strategies webpage, uh, which is just climatestrategies.org. And if you look at their list of projects, there's one called Transitional Justice and Climate Change or a Reconciliation Approach to Climate Change. I can't remember what they've called it. There is a initial discussion paper there. Um, We will be, as we continue to produce more documents, we have an upcoming workshop in March of 2016. Mm -hmm. And following that, we'll have a bunch more policy documents coming out and we'll continually be posting them there. So if people are interested, that's where they can find more information. So that was Sonia Klinsky. You can find the transcript of the interview along with a few useful links on Sonia and her work uh, on the website. The shift is recorded in Brighton at the University of Sussex. We bring researchers and thinkers from across the UK and hopefully the world to share their latest research on issues of energy and sustainability. So keep an eye out for more podcasts, subscribe and share it with social links that you can find on this page. Finally, we would love to hear from you. If you want to co-host the show with me, help edit the podcast, set up an interview improve the podcast in any manner, or if you have any other suggestions, please write to us on the website. So until then, keep listening to The Shift.